All right, well, open your Bibles to John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And uh, obviously, you've been hopefully reading and being exposed to some of the issues regarding this particular passage. There was a guy a few years ago at a shepherd's conference, uh, one of the main session speakers, who did a session on some historical issue. I think it was inerrancy. Um, but he did a, a, a session on a historical issue where he had to go back and track this doctrine and all of that. But at the very beginning, he says, you know, today's going to be kind of a unique sermon. I want you to know that. It's going to be a little bit of a, of a lecture and a little bit of a sermon. So I'm calling it a lerman. All right. Well, this morning is that. Okay. I want you to know that a little bit of a lecture, maybe the first quarter of it. And then the latter part, two to three quarters, a sermon so we're going to call it a lerman out of the Gospel of John, all right? So John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Well, as you know, the Bible, and part of the reason why you're here is because the, the Bible is a treasure, isn't it? The Bible is a treasure. No book in the history of mankind is more popular than the Bible, is more known than the Bible. Uh, more has been written about the Bible than any other book. And as you know, if you've read some church history, more blood has been spilt over the Bible and its contents than any other book in the history of mankind. The Bible is a, is a treasure that we have. It's a divine book. We know that. The author is God himself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, all scripture is inspired by who? By God. And the idea there is expired by God. It comes to us from God. He's the source of, the, of his word. But God used men to pen... His very words. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Write that verse down. Second Peter 1.21 says, No scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the sense thereof moved is that the Spirit of God superintended or carried along the human authors of Scripture. He used their individual personalities, their experiences, um, their thought process, processes, even their vocabulary to pen the very words of God, to pen his very words, his exact words, okay? And the original autographs is what we call them. The original autographs are basically um, the original documents which make up the 66 books of the Bible. These documents originally penned by the human authors were call, are called the original autographs, okay? Now, most of you know that we don't have the original autographs in our possession, we don't have those, and I think, frankly, it's very, a very good thing that we don't have the original autographs because of our tendency towards idolatry and towards the accumulation of relics, what, right? With things that we consider sacred, we tend to idolize those kinds of things. So I think it's good that we don't have the original autographs um, in our possession. But what we do have, what we do have are copies of the original. Copies of the original. In fact, we have an enormous number of, of surviving copies of the original. No other historic document, brothers, in the history of history, of literature, even comes close to what we have as far as the contents of the Bible. No document even comes close. Now, you may be aware that before the printing press in the 1400s, the New Testament, for instance, was copied by hand many, many times. And from very early on, Jewish rabbis made copy after copy by hand. That process was grueling. It was tedious. But they took very special care, these Jewish rabbis, to make sure that everything was copied verbatim. Okay? 
Um, now, because they didn't have paper as we do, they wrote on two primary types of material, papyrus, which is basically made a type of material from plants, and parchment, a type of material from animal skins. You may recall how Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.13 to, to when he visits Paul, he says, bring the parchments with you, right? Bring the parchments with you. Those were most, most likely copies of scripture or maybe some other things that Paul had written, but maybe scripture as well. So these materials are what manuscripts were made of. And so you ask, how many manuscripts do we have? Well, just of the New Testament, which is specific to what we're going to deal with today, just of the New Testament, there are approximately over 5,800 or so Greek manuscripts. The New Testament, as you know, was written in Greek. So we have over 5,800 or so manuscripts or fragments. In addition, we have hundreds of copies of ancient translations or versions, not counting over 8,000 copies of the Latin Vulgate alone. So even though we don't have the original autographs, I guess what I'm telling you is we do have an overwhelming, enormous amount of manuscripts which make it very possible for scholars and students of the Bible to reconstruct the original autographs. And that's very encouraging for us. And this is where, where textual criticism comes in, okay? Textual criticism. There's a question in your um, uh, small group questions about this, also known as lower criticism. The primary aim of textual criticism is to reconstruct as best as possible the original text of the Bible. And what these authors or scholars have done is, is take all of the known manuscripts at our disposal, study these rigidly, evaluate them, and carefully uh, compare them in order to ascertain the original autographs, okay? So it's a rigid kind of um, a pursuit, but I think a good one in its purest sense, okay? Obviously, there are liberal textual critics who seek to disvalidate Scripture, but there are conservative ones who actually do a very faithful job um, and task uh, of analyzing uh, all of those manuscripts. And this is ultra important, okay? Because of the fact that we have an enormous number of surviving copies, over 5,800 of them as it relates to the New Testament, um, because of all that we have at our disposal, this allows for experts to reconstruct the original um, documents with great accuracy, okay? It would be like you having a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle with no pieces missing. And in fact, what you have is you even have more pieces, way more pieces than you need, so that you're able to not only complete that puzzle, but also ascertain which pieces don't belong to that particular puzzle. I liken it to that, okay? So this is how certain we can be that what we have is the very word of God. Now, this is also very important for you to take note of, okay? Every single book that we have was Holy Scripture upon being authored, okay? Upon being written. This is why Jude, verse 3, speaks of, of Christians needing to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I love that. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's speaking of the body of truth, of the word of God that was given to us once and for all. And so, listen, Holy Scripture irrespective of textual criticism and that science and art that is practiced, Holy Scripture was Holy Scripture upon being written once and for all. As soon as those, those human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit pen those words, that is Holy Scripture. 
It doesn't need any validation from any other human beings. The self-witness of Scripture that it's God's very word is enough, isn't it? It's enough. So think about that. But having this mass amount of manuscript evidence of Holy Scripture only increases our confidence that what we have in good English translations, at least for us here in the States, is the very word of God. And so I want you to know that. And I want you to walk away knowing that what you have in your Bibles is Holy Scripture. All right, I've, I've bored, enough, I bored you guys to death enough, right? Enough of that. But if you are an eager beaver who really desires to get even more into this, okay, here are some resources for you to have added, okay? Three resources. One is a book by a guy named Bruce Metzger, actually two books by Bruce Metzger, The Canon of the New Testament, the Canon of the New Testament, and the Text of the New Testament, both by Bruce Metzger. And then there's a, uh, another great resource called Historical Criticism of the Bible. Historical Criticism of the Bible by a lady named Ada Lindemann. Ada Lindemann. Ada was a non-believing, flaming liberal turned evangelical. She was a former Boltman disciple who repented of that. Boltman believed that Christianity was descended from Gnosticism, and she repented from being a follower of that guy. And so that's a great work for you to read as well, okay? Historical Criticism of the Bible by Ada Lindemann, okay? But all of this, simply, if you're taking notes, so that you would, number one, be aware of the central issue regarding our passage. Be aware of the central issue here, okay? Um, I didn't want to get into, devote the whole 40 minutes or 45 minutes to this issue, but you need to be aware as a student of God's Word what the issue is, because you have this passage bracketed there, in your ESV Bibles, if you notice, with some kind of a comment that, you know, this passage doesn't exist in most ancient manuscripts or isn't in the best manuscripts, you need to be aware of what they're talking about. And so the central issue is just that. John 7, 53 through 8, 11 was not part of John's gospel in the best manuscripts that we have in our possession, okay? Why do we believe this passage was not part of John's gospel? I have seven reasons for you very quickly, okay? And if you need these after, I can give them to you, but I just want to shoot them off. One, the best manuscripts at our disposal don't contain this particular passage. The best manuscripts at our disposal don't contain this particular passage, okay? Some manuscripts that we have are given higher priority than others. Well, the best ones, the most reliable ones, the earliest manuscripts don't have this particular passage, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Two, it does not appear in the earliest translations of the Bible. It doesn't appear in the earliest translations of the Bible, like the, the old Syriac or Coptic or Gothic or other, uh, the old Latin translations. This particular passage is not in those translations, okay? Three, it's not referenced in any of the early church fathers, like Clement and Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian, Cyril, and others. In fact, no Greek writer comments on this particular passage for the first 11 centuries until the 12th century AD when a guy by the name of Euthymius comments on the passage only to declare that the most accurate copies do not contain it. So fourth, because of its style and vocabulary, the style and vocabulary of this particular text is different than the rest of the gospel of John. The language doesn't fit with the rest of the gospel that we've been studying. Five, it clearly interrupts the natural flow of the Gospel of John. It interrupts the natural flow. 
the gospel could, would actually read better and more naturally. Maybe you've noticed this as you've been reading the gospel of John every week. I know diligently, two or three times each of you. But maybe you've noticed you could actually go very naturally just from 752 straight into 812, all right, without skipping a beat. Six, many of the manuscripts that do include this passage mark it with, with an asterisk or what is known as an obelisk. An obelisk is, it sort of looks like a division symbol, and it was a way for the scribes to show that the passage was doubtful, okay? So many manuscripts contain this, this particular device here called an obelisk or, or some kind of or an asterisk for us that shows that the passage was considered by them to be doubtful as part of the original, okay? And then finally, seven, the placing of the story. Um, in, other, this, in some of the manuscripts, this particular story actually appears, for instance, after John 7.36, after John 21.24, after John 7.44, and even in Luke, in some manuscripts, it appears after Luke 21.38, and so in some manuscripts, the, the passage is not where the, where the English Bible that we have placed it, casting a, some doubt that it was part of John's gospel, okay? So for these reasons and others, these are the primary reasons, most don't believe that the passage was part of John's gospel, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that. However, however, some of the most reliable conservative scholars and students of the Bible and pastors believe that the, that the passage is most likely historical, that it actually happened and maybe it was preserved. It was part of Christological church tradition, right? And I do believe that as well. When, when did this account take place? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. We simply don't know. But what's encouraging is there's no doctrinal error in the passage. It's also, as we're going to see, uh, very consistent with the character of Jesus, who was a, a man, as we've seen him in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, who was a man that was characterized by compassion, wasn't he? Merciful. Constantly was a friend of sinners. In fact, in Mark 2, he was accused of being a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners by the religious leaders in, in the home of Levi after Levi had come to know Christ. What is this guy... Who, what is this Jesus, friend of tax collectors and sinners? And in John 4, we saw how the Lord reached out to this hated Samaritan woman, this rejected woman. Not only was she Samaritan, but she was a woman. She was the, the lowest of the low. And what is Jesus doing? He's a Jew, right? And considered a teacher by some, unofficially. And he's over there interacting with this woman, the Samaritan woman. So even though we would agree, and I certainly do agree, that the passage is not part of John's gospel, I'd like for us to spend a few minutes here contemplating some familiar truths and themes that this passage highlights, which are very consistent with the character and the mission of our Lord, okay? So point number two, if you're taking notes, let's be reminded of some familiar lessons. Let's be reminded in this passage of some familiar lessons about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that we might worship him and that we might respond with a greater desire to serve our King, okay? Lesson number one. Lesson number one, these are subpoints under your second main point, okay? We're reminded of the fact that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness, making it possible, right, for a woman like this to be forgiven. There are some people that come into this story, and this is one of their defenses. Uh, they say, you know, look at, look at Jesus in this passage. This passage can definitely not, is not part of John's original gospel because of the fact that Jesus sort of downplays her sin, right? Here are these religious leaders coming and saying she's broken the law 
And Jesus sort of downplays the seriousness of this from their perspective. But Jesus didn't come breaking the law, did he? I'm going to take you to some passages in your, in your questions where you, you're going to go and read about God's perspective of, of the law and, and Jesus' perspective of the law. Jesus was all about fulfilling all righteousness. But he came obeying the law from the heart, which was the very thing that the religious leaders did not do. And so this is what he, he goes after here. The Lord Jesus goes after the fact that these guys are just giving lip service to the fact that they, they are about the law. They're not about the law. They didn't love this woman. And more importantly, they weren't necessarily in a pure way after the glory of God and their obedience of the law. And they didn't care about her at all. Here they come. You know, their, their ammo is constantly, Jesus is a lawbreaker. You know, according to Leviticus 20 verse 10, which is sort of what, the, what they're referencing both an adulterer and an adulteress are to be punished for the act that they just caught her doing. But in coming to Jesus, they have impure motives, don't they? Verse 6 sort of reveals that. Look at verse 6. It tells us that this, they said, these religious leaders, to test him, to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. I mean, all they care about is indicting Jesus. That's their motivation. These religious leaders, they don't care about the glory of God. They don't care about Jesus, and they definitely don't care about this woman. All they want to do is they want to trap Jesus. The other thing is that really reveals their motives is, let me ask you, where's the man? Where's the man, right? If both the adulterer and the adulteress, according to Leviticus 20 verse 10, are supposed to be killed, punished for this, where's the man? They only bring the lady. They only bring her. That also exposes their, their self-righteousness, doesn't it? And their evil motives to just trap Jesus. So they give lip service to being law keepers, but they miss the whole intent of the law of God. I like what our pastor said on Sunday morning. Essentially, you know, it's not enough to just know something intellectually. That's where it begins, right? Romans 12, 2, uh, the renewing of our thinking. But also, it's so important for, for you to not only understand something intellectually, but for you to understand what it means by what it says, so that it impacts your heart and life and propels you to action. And he was talking, obviously, about, our pastor was about, the need to really come to grips and grasp, be so captivated by, by Jesus and his glory so that you're propelled to action and to want to tell other people about Jesus. I love that. Well, this is Jesus' world right there. He's all about not only external adherence to the law, obedience, but he wants to get to the heart of the matter. And that's exactly what he does here with these religious leaders. Notice what he does in verse 6. He bends down. It's over in a, in a contemplative posture to write on the ground. You ask, Pastor Kempis, what, what did he write? <laughs> There's been many people who've written articles and all kinds of crazy things about what Jesus must have written on the ground, right? Answer, not a clue. We don't know, right? One day we can ask the Lord, Lord, what, what were you writing on the ground, right? No clue. The text doesn't tell us. But I do believe that he did this to pause and perhaps to get them to consider their words, to get them to, to contemplate the intent of their hearts, perhaps to get them to do some heart triaging. But is that what they do? That's not what they do, right? Look at verse 7. It says that they continued to ask him. They continued to insist upon the same thing. Basically, these guys persist in their self-righteousness. That's what they do. They were self-righteous. They were like the, like the 
uh, guy, the self-righteous Pharisee in, the, in, the para, in that parable that Jesus told in Luke 18, where remember what that self-righteous Pharisee was doing? He's in the temple uh, up in the front. Lord, I'm glad that I do this and I do this and I do this. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm not like that tax collector in the back of the room, right? Remember that guy? And what was the tax collector doing in the back? He's standing back there beating his breast. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He wouldn't even look up. He, he didn't even consider himself worthy of looking up to the God of the universe, so to speak, in prayer. Like, Lord, he has a, a broken heart over his own sin. Well, these guys are the opposite of that. They're self-righteous. But that kind of heart that that man, that, that, that tax collector in the back of the room in Luke 18 had of, of just brokenness over his sin. That's the kind of heart that Jesus was always looking for. So he is exposing these religious leaders here in our text, in our debated text. Look at verse 7. The Lord stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. They, they, they feel the sting of their hypocrisy and self-righteousness, but not unto repentance. Right? There's a remorse that doesn't lead to humble repentance and brokenness. So, but they do feel the sting of their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Hmm. And I think it's important for us to remember here that Jesus is neither endorsing nor condoning this woman's behavior. What does he tell her? From now on, sin no more later on, right? From now on, sin no more. Same thing with the, with the Samaritan woman back in John chapter 4. What did he say to her? He confronts her on her sin, right? And basically calls her to sin no more as well. So Jesus is not condoning nor endorsing this woman's behavior here in our text. Jesus was concerned with her obeying God. He came to fulfill the law. But here, he's trying to get to the heart of the matter, to the heart of the law. Both with the religious Pharisees as well as in his dealing with this woman. Out of love and compassion for her. Because they could care less about God or this woman. But isn't the, the intent of the law love and compassion, that ultimately we obey God's commandments and God's law out of a love for him and out of love for one another. And so I want you to think about this. Even if this particular passage of scripture was not part of John's gospel, the theme of Jesus as lawkeeper from the heart who came to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of sinners is so consistent in this passage with other parts of scripture, isn't it? So consistent. And again, in your small groups, I want you to go to Matthew 5 and 1 Timothy and, and Galatians, texts that speak about God's perspective of the law and its usefulness as a tutor to lead us to Christ, who is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law and all righteousness in a way that none of us as sinners could. That's why we need his righteousness imputed to us. We cannot fulfill the law perfectly in and of ourselves at all. Only Christ has done that. Only Jesus scored a perfect 10 before God Almighty, right? By virtue of his perfect life and his atoning death on the cross for sinners. We need his righteousness. Jesus, the God-man, perfectly fulfilled the law on behalf of sinners, such as this adulterous woman, brothers, so that she could find forgiveness. That's amazing. And he's done that for us, for those of us who have repented of our sins and put our trust in him. He has he has procured forgiveness for us by virtue of his atoning death. Amen? 
It's beautiful. Secondly, lesson number two, second sub point for you guys. Here we see, as in all the Gospels, lesson number two, Jesus' heart for sinners. Jesus' heart for sinners. His, law, his heart for lawbreakers, right? That's what it has impacted me over the years, reading through the Gospel of John. And yes, knowing, being aware of the issues, but coming into this passage thinking, wow, this is him again and again and again. What a heart for sinners. I wish I had that kind of heart, right? We know this, that he had a heart for sinners. But how often do you ponder the glorious significance of this? How often are you astounded by the fact that Jesus in the Gospels, brothers, was constantly reaching out to the outcasts of society, to the rejected? You know, to those who maybe we get frustrated about on television, who, yes, we should feel a sense of righteous indignation as we see the things that they're doing. Yes, in its purest form, we should feel righteous indignation because of people who are basically shaking their fist at God through their words or through their actions, right? And going against his truth. We should feel, a, in its purest sense, a sense of righteous indignation. But how oftentimes do you respond with compassion towards those people? Remember that it were not for, for God's grace, you would be in the same place right now. Remember what 1 Corinthians 6 says? Such were some of you. Such were some of us. But we were washed, but we were justified, but we were, we were being sanctified in the name of, 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 of the Lord and the Spirit of, of, of our God, right? Such were some of us, Paul says. We were the, the, the promiscuous. We were the slanderers. We were the haters. We were the liars and the gossips and the slanderers. Such were some of us. But God, right? How often do we respond like Jesus? She deserved Right By all accounts, to be punished, she's a big sinner. She had broken the law, and according to the law, she must be punished. But in fact, this is exactly why Jesus came, to die on the cross of Calvary for people like her. He took our punishment. He took that woman's place on the cross, making it possible for her to be forgiven. That's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? That God cannot ignore sin. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. So what did God do in Jesus Christ? Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and fully satisfied the justice of God for our sins. Can I get an amen? And we should worship him for that. So that, as Romans 3.26 says, God may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross, satisfying God's justice, that God may be just, that his uh, holy, righteous character would be vindicated as he paid for sins on the cross, and two, that he would, to make it possible for God to also justify sinners, that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That's what Christ did on our behalf. That's why we love Isaiah chapter 53, don't we? which speaks about the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in our place for our sins. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And then you know the verse, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen? That's what Christ did. 
That's a glorious passage about our Jesus. That's substitutionary atonement language. Christ in our place to cover and pay for our sins who have believed in him. Such is the heart of Christ for sinners. Like this adulterous woman, like the Samaritan woman, like Nicodemus, respectable, moral man, who is just a sinner, just as much as that adulterous woman was, and for us. And so you see, Jesus is not condoning or ignoring what this woman has done. He's a friend of sinners who came to die for the greatest of them, such as this woman. And the religious leaders constantly took issue with Jesus over this, right? Back in Mark 2, 13 through 17, in the home of Levi, the religious leaders are outraged with Jesus. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Answer, when Jesus' words, I did not come to call the righteous, those who think that they are righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to seek and to save the lost. He came to heal those who acknowledge that they are sick. And I wonder, brothers, how about us? How about us? Do we share the heart of Christ for sinners in our life by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit? Following in the steps of Jesus, the friend of sinners, are you about the same mission of, of reaching broken people for Christ? Does your heart ache for the worst sinners in our society? I mean, really, when, it's not about emotionalism, but when was the last time that you were actually driven genuinely to grieve internally or even to shed tears over the lostness of people in our society? Remember what Jesus did when he saw the multitudes in Matthew chapter 9? It says that he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the shortest verse in the Bible or sentence in the Bible is Jesus what? Wept. Jesus wept. Of course, we could never perfectly, in, the, in its most purest form, have that kind of, of compassion like Jesus, right? He's unique in that. That's why we need his righteousness. But he calls us to have the same kind of compassion for sinners. I wonder how many of us respond that way. This is our mission. People, broken people in our society are our mission. We're not here to isolate ourselves from the culture around us, sticking our heads in the sand, oblivious to the world around us and what's taking place. We're not here to assimilate ourselves with sinners doing and thinking like the world. Yes, preach it, amen. But we are here on mission to reach broken sinners for Christ. And so we need to be praying, Lord, give me a greater heart for the lost. Give me a greater heart for the lost as your son had. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. This is what we need to be as well doing, reaching people for Christ. There's one final lesson, okay, that I want us to glean from this passage. One final implication, if you will, and it's this. Lesson number three. Jesus' example of forgiveness. Jesus' example of forgiveness. We see it here. We glean as we look at this account that Christ is a forgiving Savior with the worst of sinners. And have you noticed in the Gospels that Jesus was, was harder on the religious leaders, on the self-righteous, than people like this adulterous woman? Not because he condoned what she was doing. Not because he, he condoned uh, 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 sinful, uh, the sinful Samaritan woman. Not because he condoned um, even people who were poor and destitute, and maybe who, some of whom didn't work hard. He didn't condone that kind of behavior, but he was the, the hardest on the religious hypocrites who at least intellectually knew better. Later on, 
right? He's going to pronounce woes, seven woes on the religious leaders. I mean, he was explicitly hard on people like that. And yet for people like this adulterous woman, he was very much gentle with the truth, told her the truth, from now on sin no more, but he was absolutely compassionate and willing to forgive. I guess what I want to encourage us with is this. 1 Peter 2.21 says that we as Christians are to follow in the steps of Christ. And you and I are never more Christ-like than when you and I practice forgiveness from the heart. I love one of my favorite texts. In fact, go there with me. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. On this issue of the kind of heart of forgiveness that we should have as Christians. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. Man, we can read the whole chapter. But this is the new life in Christ. And Paul's point has been, you are now, uh, you are now the, a new man, a new creation. Live out the implications of the fact that you are a new creation. Live out your position of a person who's in Christ now practically. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, believer, Christian, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How are you not going to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? What does this look like? Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, all evil, all corruption, all wickedness. And on the other hand, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. What? Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you or forgave you. Sorry, I'm quoting the New American Standard sometimes when I'm reading the ESV these days now. Right? But underline that. As God in Christ forgave you. That's key, isn't it? There's no way naturally in our own, in and of ourselves, that we are going to naturally have a propensity toward forgiveness unless... We are pondering the good news of the gospel and what God did in Christ Jesus, right? Then we are fueled to forgive other people. And so in John 8, back in John 8, we see Jesus in what was most likely a real historical account in his life. We see Jesus showing compassion and mercy to the sinning woman because he would be going to the cross to procure forgiveness for her. And we are called to practice the same kind of forgiveness, brothers, so that... If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I mean, this is where, that's where it begins for you. You're going to be a forgiving person. You need to, first of all, realize that you need to be forgiven by God through Jesus Christ first. You need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ, assuming not that every single person in this room has done that. That's where, that's where you need to start. There's no way that you can really genuinely, in a, in a God-glorifying way, forgive other people unless you've experienced the saving forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. And for us, who have been forgiven, we realize that God has sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for us and forgiven us so that we forgive others as well, to release us of, that, of the power, sin's grip, that drives us to bitterness and resentment and hostility towards others, right? But we look at the cross. We look at the, the cross of Calvary to be driven towards greater forgiveness. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. But I wonder how many of us really do extend that kind of forgiveness to others. That's a question that I take you to in your, in your small groups, right? Is there someone, your brethren, your brother or sister in the Lord, your spouse perhaps, your grandchild or granddaughter, your children in the home, somebody who's hurt you, legitimately has offended you, are you ready and eager to forgive them? 
Somebody asked, well, what if they don't ask you for forgiveness? What if, what if they haven't come to you? I think that you need a, there needs to be a readiness to forgive nevertheless. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? What is the father doing? He's looking out, right? So that if there's even any sign, a smallest sign of his son coming back, he's ready to run after his son, right? I think that's the heart of, that we need to have even when people haven't asked for our forgiveness, haven't acknowledged their sin against us. There needs to be a readiness and an eagerness. Why? Because of us? No, because look at God in Christ Jesus. Were you seeking him? You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins as I was. We weren't seeking God. He sought us. He found us. He sought us out. That becomes now the example that we emulate, don't we? A readiness and an eagerness to forgive. Often we forget that the chasm of offenses which exists between us and another sinner is nothing compared to the infinite chasm, the separation that existed between us and God and how much we had offended a perfect, holy, righteous, glorious, majestic God. And yet he forgave us, right? So who are we to hold one sin against another sinner when God has Forgiven us of an infinite chasm of sins that we can never repay, a debt that we can never repay. And this is the problem with the Pharisees in our debated passage, isn't it? They were self-righteous individuals who missed the true intent of the law of God, who missed the real message of love and, and compassion. So are you practicing Christ-like forgiveness, brothers, this morning? I think that's a lesson that we, an implication of this text. What is forgiveness, you ask? It's the releasing someone of the debt that they owe you. That's the sense. You're, re you're releasing someone of the debt or the offense that they've committed against you. You're willing to release them of that, to pardon them as God has pardoned you in Christ Jesus of an infinitely greater debt, right? And it would include at least three things. If there's genuine forgiveness, it would include at least three things. Ready? In our thoughts, we commit to no longer dwell on the resolved issue. In our thinking, we commit to no longer dwell on the resolved issue. In our speech, we commit to no longer bring up the resolved issue with others in a way that we use it against the person to undermine their character. So in our speech, we commit to no longer talk about the issue with other people in a way that would undermine the character of the person that we say that we have forgiven, right? Obviously, if you bring it up as an example, that's different, but if you're holding bitterness and you, and yeah, I've forgiven them, but you know, the, and you, you're talking to other people, be careful with that. That's not forgiveness. It's not genuine forgiveness at all. So in thought, speech, in our relationship with the person, thirdly, we commit to not allow the resolved issue to hinder our relationship with them into the future. In our relationship, we don't allow that, the, the resolved issue to hinder our relationship with them into the future. And so Jesus' example of love and forgiveness becomes the pattern for us to emulate toward others. And so, yes, okay, let it be said that John 7, 53 through 811 most likely was not part of John's gospel, likely only part of historical Christological tradition, but the lessons that we glean from our Lord, about our Lord, are consistent with other parts of Scripture and the gospels, aren't they? What? His fulfilling all righteousness, not just outward but from the heart is consistent with the rest of the gospel so that because of the fact that he fulfilled all righteousness, an adulterous woman like that could find forgiveness. 
Two, his heart for sinners is evident here, always reaching out to the outcasts and the rejects and the people who have nothing to offer. Jesus reached out especially to those people who were broken and who knew their need. And then third, his example of forgiveness is shown here, which we too should emulate. Okay, let's pray, brothers. Father God, we're so grateful to you for even an account like this that, Lord, that we are convinced not originally part of John's gospel, nevertheless probably took place. And Lord, we have a plethora of other examples in the gospels of the, the compassion of your son who came to seek and to, and to save. Those who weren't looking for him, he came to search us. Lord, that the eternal son of God, your son would come into this world to seek us out. That he would leave his infinite glory in heaven to come down to our dump. Why? Because of your great love, you sent your son Jesus into the world to seek us out. What a heart for sinners. Father, thank you. Help us to emulate Jesus' character and his commitment to reach people for himself. Help us to live that out as men now. Lord, I think about our pastor beating the drum on Sunday mornings again and again and again in the book of Acts concerning our mission. Lord, help us to not be, Lord, in any way distracted by the peripheral things of life. That, Father, we would be centered on our mission, whether in our jobs or our neighborhoods, in the life of this church. Lord, help us to not deviate from that. There's so many distractions, so many things that, Lord, could become the focus in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be singular on our mission, resolved to proclaim the message of Christ to a lost world and to be maturing disciples here in this church. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.